the snowball's been here since 34, but nobody's known about it until a couple of years ago. Only people that were uh, locals or Division One skiers knew that we were even here. So we've undergone a little bit of a marketing piece in the past five years. Maybe that's helping some. People are learning about us, but uh, I think they're also understanding that there is this little area nearby that is pretty reasonably priced and isn't crowded. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back to the center of New England skiing today, Vermont. Before we get there, a reminder to please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. If you're only listening to this podcast via one of the podcasting services like Apple or Spotify, you are missing a lot. There is an article on stormskiing.com that accompanies this and every podcast that includes maps, photos, facts, and tons of additional context on our conversation. But frankly, the podcast is just a small part of the storm. I am breaking down the world of lift-serve skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year, and you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe to the Storm Ski Newsletter. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Ski Newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Middlebury Snowball, here is a quick word from my partner, Aspenware. Close your ticket windows with Aspenware. Aspenware is the leading e-commerce solution purpose-built for the mountain resort industry. They create robust platforms that drive revenue while providing a seamless online experience for resort guests. Utilizing their extensive experience with the mountain resort industry, Aspenware creates customized e-commerce platforms that ensure resort guests spend more time doing what they love and less time standing in lines or booking their trip online. One client found such success with Aspenware's e-commerce solution that they were able to reduce their ticket windows from 13 down to just two. The resort then reassigned those staff members into positions where they could actively engage with guests and bring value to other areas of the resort. Based in Denver, Colorado, Aspenware stands apart as an innovator. They understand the value that software and technology bring to a mountain resort, and they strive to create solutions so good they seem invisible. Visit Aspenware.com to learn more. Episode 130 Mike Hussey, General Manager of Middlebury College Snowball, Vermont. Suddenly, Middlebury Snowball is jamming. As Mike lays out in our conversation, skier visits to this small, college-owned bump leapt 20% this past season after rising an astonishing 60% for the 2021-22 to ski season. If you're paying any attention at all, you know that sustained growth like that is absolutely unheard of in U.S. skiing, especially with the challenging back-to-back weather winters that have beaten down New England. Middlebury is doing something right, and they have my attention. This summer alone, the mountain is installing night skiing and replacing their Sheehan double with a brand new quad, plowing that revenue from increased skier visits right back into the ski experience. Middlebury is in a really unique and uniquely challenging spot. Situated a half dozen miles off Route 100, it is sandwiched between the Icon Pass monsters of Killington and Sugarbush 
and the epic past mainstays of Okimo and Stowe. But after nearly 90 years of fighting off the big dogs, Middlebury, an affordable, crowd-free, thousand-footer with underrated terrain, may finally be positioned to meet its full potential. With the Epic and Icon Mountains pushing or exceeding $200 for a peak day lift ticket, Vermont skiers are pining for a drop-in ski experience that won't make them skip a mortgage payment. So what's going on with Middlebury College Snowball? How is this scrappy, fun little mountain rising in the land of New England Giants? Let's find out. My guest today has been general manager of Middlebury College Snowball since 2018. Owned and operated by Middlebury College, the ski area has been in continual operation since 1936. Middlebury College Snowball sits on 1,000 vertical feet, served by four lifts, including a brand new fixed grip quad scheduled to open for the 2023-24 to ski season. He has also been the director of the 55-kilometer Rickert Nordic Center since 2010. Prior to joining Rickert at Middlebury Snowball, he spent 17 years with HKD Snowmakers. Mike Hussey is my guest. Mike, so good to connect. Welcome to the storm. How are you doing as you unwind from the 2022 to 23 ski season? Oh, thank you, Stuart. Thanks for having me on. This is this is great. Yeah, great. It's a miracle march, right? You know, we had a you know pretty <laughs> slow start, and then uh, you know we had this great the great snows in March, and you know really really ended up having a, a great season. You know, we were up about twenty percent in skier visits. We were up in revenue. So uh, all in all, in the end, it worked out well for us. Yeah, <laughs> that's great to hear. I'm, I'm curious how that translates to Ricker, you know, I, I focus mostly on downhill skiing, so I'm not as familiar with the cross-country mm-hmm. scene. So I'll ask a stupid question. Do you make snow over there? Were you able to go during that tough early season at the cross-country center? Yes. Yeah, so one quick correction, uh, it's actually Reichert, uh, just to clarify, Reichert, okay. clarify that. But yes, we do. We put in uh, five kilometers of snowmaking at Reichert back in 2011. And at the time, it was, it was kind of the 800 pound gorilla of snowmaking systems in the Nordic industry around here, but <laughs> it's changed uh, in the last few years with some <laughs> other systems getting put in, which is great. But yes, that does uh, have a great effect on our ability to run the Nordic Center as well. When we did that, we went from operating sort of uh, oh, about 70 days helter skelter through the winter on and off to 130 days the first year consistently without closing. Wow. So yes, it, it def- definitely makes a, an impact. So do you still have snowmaking on five of those 55 acres? Have you expanded that system or kilometers? Rather? Yes. Uh, no, we have not expanded that system. Um, we are on five. We, we, we maintain the five kilometers there. Yeah. So how much of this season were you able to actually get the full network open? Oh, gosh. Uh, on a percentage basis, probably about close to 50%. And again, Miracle March, right? So, you know, <laughs> later in later in February into March, we had pretty much the whole system open. Yeah, March was terrific. They got really bullseyed in southern Vermont with Bromley Mount Snow Magic and Stratton cleaning up. How did those storms treat Middlebury Snowball when they swept through? Perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like to say a six-inch storm is is perfect for operations. You get four, two to four feet, and uh, we just lose, we run out of places to put it in the parking lot. You know, right. but it's great for the skiing. <laughs> so we got the you know foot here, maybe eighteen inches. You know, whatever it is, we had a little bit less, but it worked out really nicely. We were able to manage it well and provided some really nice skiing. 
So we were just chatting about the National Ski Areas Association before this podcast, which was down in Savannah last week, and we were both down there. And the NSAA made a big announcement that the U.S. not only set, but really smashed all-time skier visits records up 6%, which is pretty big jump from the 61 million they had last year to 64 million. And the Northeast as a whole finished above last season. And you just said that Middlebury College Snowball did as well. Did that surprise you, Mike, given what you saw around Vermont in January and and the rough February that we had? Or did that line up with what you were seeing at at Snowball and with your colleagues elsewhere? That's a perfect yes, no answer. (laughs) (laughs) A little surprised. Yes, we had a rough start here in the East, but with how things ended up here at the Bowl, you know, with a 20% increase over the year, it didn't totally surprise me, especially knowing what what was going on out west. I have to say, I, I was hoping that our 20% was based on something we were doing. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. <laughs> you no, know, it's great. It's great. Everybody was throughout the country. We were up significantly. That's 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 awesome. I mean, 20% is big. The national increase was 6%. And you have to think that accounts for the massive snows they had out west. And there's so many scariest still as we're recording this on May 15th that are open for operations because they just have so much snow. I mean, I have to say that I think 20% is probably well above average. I, I think there's something there, Mike. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I think we're getting a little bit of the crossover of the people that are skiing at the bigger areas that are looking for something a little smaller, a little, a little quieter. You know, we're seeing a lot of uh, first-time visitors, a lot of day ticket sales. You know, we have a day ticket of $65, this past year going up to 65 But that's fairly different than some of the areas that are right around us. And I, and I think we're getting a little bit of that crossover, those those folks coming to visit us and, and finding us over here on the other side of the mountain. Yeah. And over the last two to three years, really since COVID, single day peak lift tickets at Killington, Sugarbush, and Stowe have bumped right up against $200 a day. They have not crossed that line yet. You still have some big places, Mad River Glen, Smuggler's Notch, and Jay Peak that are right around the $100 mark. But as Sugarbush and Killington, which are the two biggest places close to you, raise their prices, it sounds like you're seeing some spillover, some folks who are saying, okay, well, you know, this is smaller, but it's still skiing and I can afford to take my family there for a day. Is, is that, do you think that's part yeah, of it? Yeah, I do. And yeah, I do. You know, between tickets and lessons, pricing, and you know, especially on the beginner side, the size of the mountain isn't as critical to a beginner, right? And in fact, a smaller mountain may be a little bit more attractive because they don't have to get their head around quite as much. So that, I, I think, yes, we're, we're seeing that. I'm also seeing on your, I'm looking at your website right now, actually $45 lift tickets on weekdays. Yeah, midweek. Yes. Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. When you do have busy days, Mike, are you seeing lift lines or is it still a, a ski-on experience for the most part? Yeah, we have a we have an operational problem, but it's a customer experience benefit. And that is that uh, we have three times the uphill capacity than we that we have parking or lodge capacity. So when we're parked out to the road and parking out on the highway, which we, we don't allow, but people do anyway. <laughs> um, you're still you're still skiing onto the lift for the most part okay um yeah wow. you know maybe a, maybe a short line but that's you know with all our lifts running and we'd love to be able to create a lift line you know that, that would be helpful economically for us but you know on the other hand it's uh it's a benefit for the skier so do you have capacity to expand parking is that an option do you own some land where that could could happen is it a money thing or is it just you're kind of constrained by the land you have. Oh, a little bit of both. You know, we you know, we're up in the mountain, right? You know, and I think most ski areas have the same problem. You know, there's just 
not a lot of flat land around or, or reasonably sloped land to create a parking lot. We do have some overflow parking capabilities down at Rikert that we need to create a shuttle, a shuttle bus situation. We're now right at that level of skier visits to do that a number of weekends a year, but not every, certainly not every weekend. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, what you're telling me matches up really well with what I'm hearing from other independent operators around the country, which is, you know, we had, I mean, rewind six years, we didn't have the Epic and Icon Passes in New England, then Vail by Stowe, and then the Icon Pass lands, then Vail buys all of Peak Resorts. And the narrative was that this was going to be really hard for independent ski areas. It seems like just the opposite happens, Mike. So, you know, that's the kind of lazy, obvious assumption is, okay, well, if skiers can get to Killington and, and Sugarbush and the Icon Pass, no one's going to go to Middlebury Snowball. But what actually happened? What have you seen as these mega passes have arrived over the past several years? Because it kind of it kind of corresponds with your tenure starting in 2018 at Middlebury Snowball. That's when the Icon Pass arrived in New England. So what's the reality been like on the ground? Because it sounds like you're doing pretty well. Yeah, actually, um, again, I, I do think it's crossover from, from the Icon Pass to this small ski area. Last year, we were actually up 60%. So, um, yeah, pretty massive increase. And, you know, part of that was due to a little bit of marketing. The snowball's been here since 34, but nobody's known about it until a couple of years ago. Only people that were uh, locals or Division One skiers knew that we were even here. So uh, we've been open to the public since 1934, but uh, sorry, 1936. But um, anyway, to answer that question in town, even still today. Are you open to the public? Yeah. So we have, we've undergone a little bit of a marketing piece in the past five years, you know, as far back as maybe 10 years ago, but um, we're ramping that up a little bit. Maybe that's helping some people are learning about us, but uh, I think they're also understanding that there is this little area nearby that is pretty reasonably priced and isn't crowded. So, so let's talk about that ownership dynamic a little bit, Mike, because it's really interesting. There's only a handful of ski areas in the country that are owned by a college why does Middlebury College own a ski area? It's really important to the college, actually, and to the alumni. It's, it's a huge part of the, the experience here at Middlebury College to be able to recreate in the outdoors, be here in, in the mountains, enjoy the mountains. Both the Snowball and Reichert are a huge piece of the uh, experience when kids come to Middlebury. Does the college offer skiing classes? Is it a required course? What's the what's that dynamic like, or is it just a just a perk? It should be a required course, but it's not. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, actually the college is set up in a trimester situation where there's there's a J term uh, session, a January term, where kids generally take one. I should stop calling them kids; they're not kids. Um, students take one course, and they can take ski lessons for credit. So there is there is a credit course for skiing. Yes. And there's also a skiing component to the folks who graduate in February. This is so cool. For those who are not familiar, Mike, lay this out for us, the, the February ski down tradition. Okay. So for about 50 years, the college has, has brought students in starting in February and kind of based around the fact that a lot of the students go on semesters abroad or they leave after the first semester to do other studies or whatever. So there are a, lot, a bunch of beds open essentially in February. So about 50 years ago, they figured, hey, why don't we start a class that starts in February and then they'll graduate in February? Well, 
back in 86 and 87, um, there are four women that said, hey, wait a minute, we're not 86s and we're not 87s, you know, we're, we're you know, we're, we're right in between. So we're, you know, we're 86.5. <laughs> okay. And they wanted to have a celebration. So they, they rounded up an informal celebration up here on the mountain, I guess about 40 of them skied down and got uh, fake diplomas at the bottom and did this whole thing. And ever since then, it's been a standing tradition that class that's graduating in February, the, the 0.5s, the half year graduating class will come up to the snow bowl and, uh, and ski down. So it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's fun. It's good fun. That's amazing. What, what is the energy like during that event and, and how many folks, students tend to participate? All of the graduating class participates in one way or the other. If they, if they are unable to ski for whatever reason, they may snowshoe down, they may get a, a ride in a patrol sled, but the whole class is there for sure. And the energy is, the energy is high for sure. <laughs> Very high. Have you had any incidents? I mean, I mean, have, have students who maybe didn't, couldn't ski as well as they thought, or, or, or maybe just had a, had a biff and wiped out, caught an edge, something? There have been no injuries to my knowledge. But That's amazing. We had an interesting situation this year. The, the, the weather was projected to be so cold that uh, we had to do something. And, you know, we have to plan for the grandparent that is from an equatorial region who is not prepared to stand outside in the cold for an hour and a half, et cetera, et cetera. You, can, you get the picture. So, you know, the kids are generally fine. It's the people that are coming to uh, participate and to watch. So this year, we actually moved the event down onto campus and we groomed up a, a slope that comes down off the, uh, it's called Chapel Hill. It's just a small slope. We took all our rental skis down there that, that the kids needed, and we had the event right on campus. And it was fantastic. It was really fun. And it was still cold. But everybody was very close to buildings and lunch and all the other stuff. And they didn't have a big ride up the mountain on a bus. And then, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty fun. Just a big logistical operation for you. It was. It it got turned around, which was the amazing part. We turned that whole thing around from an administrative point of view, both down at the college and up here, in about a day and a half, maybe. Maybe it was two days. We We pulled the trigger on that and did it. So... Amazing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So lay this out for us normally. How does that event work from a logistics point of view? Which, which lift do they ski up? And then when they ski down, what do they ski down to? Is it like a stage? Is there grandstands where people watch? Do they take off and, and get their diploma in their ski boots? Just kind of take us through the experience. Yeah. So they're, they come from campus from a graduation ceremony in the chapel. So they've gotten their diplomas and all that. They come up here, they boot up, they go up the Sheehan lift. They ski partway down to a little level spot halfway down the Cameron Trail. They all gather up there. There's a student in a panther costume and, you know, the sign and, and you know, the whole thing. Then they, uh, they ski down in a procession, sort of, and they, <laughs> they, get, they all gather at the bottom. You know, the parents are watching. You know, there's a roped-off area for the parents to stand behind, and they all gather at the bottom. And they ski in their gowns and their mortars. They throw their mortars in the, uh, in the air and photos, and, and then they all go down to campus and have lunch. You know, I always, that, that's so funny. I always assumed that they came down the Lang Trail because that's a green trail. I'm looking at the trail map right now. You said they come down Cameron. That's a black diamond. Yeah, they, well, they come down the bottom of Cameron. They come, there's a crossover trail between the Cameron and the, and the Lang. And they, okay. um, they come across that and they come down the bottom of the Cameron, which is pretty reasonable. And it's a straight shot down to, to where the parents are standing. And forgive me if I missed this. You said, it, how many kids are this? Is this hundreds that do this? No, this is, uh, 
actually this year was almost 200. It was a wow. super big class because of COVID. And I think we have one more big class coming through next year. This is sort of the, the tale of COVID moving through the, the college. Uh, kids that took a year off and are coming back to finish up, et cetera, et cetera. So next year will be another, I believe, another pretty big class. But generally, it's like, you know, around 100, 120. Amazing. So, okay. So for the young people listening here, if you're picking out your college and you want skiing to be a part of it, Middlebury College might be high on your list. Just tell us a little bit, Mike, for those who are not familiar with Middlebury College, just give us kind of Middlebury College 101. How big is the school? What is it known for? What can you tell us about it from a a cultural academic point of view? Right. So Middlebury College is a a liberal arts school. It's uh, about uh, 2,500 students in Middlebury, Vermont. So it's right in the middle of Vermont on the west side over by Lake Champlain sort of nestled in a iconic Vermont village at the foot of the mountains. The Snow Bowl is about uh, 12 miles away on the ridge of the Green Mountains, the spine of the Green Mountains on the, on the western slope. The college is known you know, for you know, liberal arts language programs. And in the summer, there's a, a whole series of language schools down at, on campus and up in the mountain where Reichert's located, the Breadloaf School of English is a, a master's English program as well. Also very well respected in international studies. Do you, does the college run shuttle buses out to the ski area, that 12 miles? The Tri-Valley Transit, uh, which is a town bus, does run up here in the winter, yes. So what's the relationship like between the college and the ski area? I, I, I talk to the general managers of a lot of publicly owned ski areas, like Gunstock in New Hampshire, or which is owned by the county. But how does it work? Just from a budget point of view, is the ski area self-sustaining? Does the college support it as a student amenity? Kind of break that down for us in whatever terms you can. Uh, yes, no, yes. <laughs> yeah. We are wholly owned by the college. The Snowball is 100% on college-owned property. Reichert is, uh, oh gosh, about 90% on college-owned property and a little bit on National Forest Service lands. We are funded by the college. And we are open to the public. So we are a fee-based ski areas. We are working to be self-sustaining, but we are at this point are not yet. That is my, um, I guess, job. That's what I'm appointed to do is to try and get them to be self-sustaining. <laughs> so it sounds like you're on a great trajectory, Mike. 60% year-over-year skier visits last season, then 20% on top of a 60% increase. That's huge. I mean, what what needs to happen from your point of view to make the snowball sustainable, self-sustaining? So, yeah, we're right now we're sort of bumping up against our uh, comfortable carrying capacity. And um, we are an incredible value, right? In trying to become self-supporting, we have a really an interesting challenge in that we've got to maintain our culture here. As, you know, being what we are to our constituents and our customer base. But we also have to charge enough, I guess, to make it work. So my interest right now is to keep improving the customer experience without creating so many skier visits that we ruin the experience for everybody. I think many mountains are in the same challenge, right? You know, we hear about lift lines everywhere and, you know, that comfortable carrying capacity, what the mountain can sustain is the important part. For us to increase our comfortable carrying capacity, uh, we have a lot of investment and lodge and parking space. That's really our choke point. So can we maintain a small mountain feel without having to make those investments or not 
immediately anyway. You know, we talk about lifts and lights and things like that. And that's, that's an interesting, those are interesting points. You know, lifts don't necessarily bring replacement lift. Like, you know, you've got an old lift and you put a new one in. That doesn't really necessarily bring any more people. <laughs> it makes the people more comfortable that are here. Uh, but I don't think anybody's looking at that going, oh, I'm going to the snowball because they just put in a new lift. You know, okay. I think that's, yeah, that's my sense of it anyway. I don't know. I might be, I might be wrong. So there's some other things that we can be doing to, to improve that experience uh, significantly. And that's what we're looking at. It, it's an interesting dynamic, Mike, and it's an interesting challenge. It, you know, I want to go back here a little bit to, you know, you, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've been at Middlebury Snowball for five years now. How did you come to the Snowball? Just tell us about your ski career leading up to that. Uh, gosh, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's look, you know, what was your first job in skiing? I mean, did you, did you grow up in Vermont? Are you a Vermont guy originally? Yeah, I, I say I did. I, I moved here when I was about four or five from Southern Connecticut and New York state. My father was an engineer that moved around with the company that he was with. So anyway, so we moved to Vermont when I was about five and my first job in the ski industry, imagine this, I was probably eight and I, this was a paid job. I adjusted bindings for people picking up their skis at a ski shop on the weekends. People coming up from out of state that were skiing for the weekend, you know, Friday nights, they'd come in and uh, we would set them up with their rental skis. Where was this at? This was at a place called Woody's Cracker Barrel okay. in Southern Vermont, down by Stratton, which is okay. where I, I grew up down in the, the Stratton. I, I lived at a little ski area called Timber Ridge. Oh, nice. Um, okay. And, yeah, other uh, side of Magic Mountain. Yeah, the backside of Magic Mountain was was yeah. uh, later known as Timberside, but before that was Timber Ridge. Yeah, so that was the beginning of my my, my ski career. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Did you know the owner of the shop, or how, how did that yeah, happen? Yeah, my, my my mother was the manager of the shop. Okay, and so we spent a lot of time there, and we ended up we all my my two siblings and I ended up working there in the you know and when after school or whatever. <laughs> So, so there's two ways I could have gone. You, you, you could have said, okay, that's enough skiing yeah. and working in skiing, or you could have made a career out of it, which it seems like you did. So from the eight-year-old adjusting yeah. bindings, where did you go from there? <laughs> I went on to uh, a lot of Nordic ski racing um, through college and a little bit beyond college. Did you go to Middlebury? No, I went to University of New Hampshire. Where okay. I, where I skied another Division One school and, and skied for, for UNH and a little bit on the development uh, U.S. development team after that. I had studied geology at college. I came to Middlebury area for a job in geology as a geologist. So I worked in that job for five or six years. Anyway, a couple guys I knew had started HKD Snowmakers and um, things got, I don't know, the big company scene wasn't so much fun anymore in the geology world. So these guys were looking to add some, some help. And so I got on board with them in 94 and worked with HKD Snowmakers until coming to Middlebury to run Reichert in 2010-11. Uh, so you had a good long run at HKD Snowmakers. That's a really interesting company. It was founded out in Western PA at Seven Springs. And I, I toured what's left of HKD out there. And they were telling me that the company up and moved to Quebec. No one was quite sure why. I'm not sure if your tenure overlap with that move and, or if you have any insight into why that happened. That happened as I was leaving and going to the college in Rikert. That was just getting started. And it was mostly a capacity issue. A couple of things. The company didn't have a fan gun product in its mix. It was all air water. And um, Turbo Crystal was a fan gun product that worked well in the, in the mix. So the two companies 
started talking and there was also a, a manufacturing capacity that needed to be upgraded and Turbo Crystal had manufacturing on site. That's kind of all I know. I don't know all that much about how that all worked, but that's kind of the, I think the nexus of the reason for the move. So what brought you then to Reichert and then ultimately to run the snowball? I was on the road about 50,000 miles a year at the mm. time. And yeah. I was asked if I'd be interested in looking at the job at Reichert, which was three miles up the road from my house. I had uh, small children at the time. They're much bigger now. <laughs> and uh, that happens. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was an opportunity. I'd been working at trying to sell snowmaking into the Nordic industry because the Nordic industry was about. 40 years behind the alpine industry in terms of snowmaking. Kind of all, all of that came together and it decided to make a move. It worked out well. So you're there for eight years and then get the opportunity to run Snowball as well. Talk about the evolution of, of Riker under your leadership and then how that opportunity came up to manage Snowball as well and why that appealed to you. Yeah. Riker was an interesting situation. It was this small Nordic center that had been around for years. Nobody knew about it except local people and Division One skiers. I raced there in college, and but it wasn't treated as a business necessarily. It was treated more as an amenity to the college. And there was a move to initially close down the ski areas and the uh, board of trustees would have have nothing of that. So they said, no, you know, let's, let's get the these ski areas to become not profitable, but at least to break even. You know, they were losing a bunch of money on on the these ski areas, golf course, etc. So you know, I came on board to help make that happen. One of the first things we did was we rebuilt the Tormenson Race Trail, made it a an FIS homologated race trail, and then the next year we added snowmaking to that. So five Ks of snowmaking, and just tried to uh, get some marketing out there, get some people to know that we existed. And we basically tripled the skier visits in the first. I don't know, three or four years, you know, became a name that people recognized in the Nordic, it's certainly in the Eastern United States, you know, snowmaking and quality of skiing. And so that was, that was really great. The former manager, Peter Mackey of the Snowbowl, who had been here for 35 years, 40 years, retired in 2018. I saw an opportunity, you know, along the same lines to make some changes up here at the Snowbowl that I think could help with the, uh, the same issues, exposure and deficit. So I put my name in the hat for that, which was uh, 2018 season and, and then uh, made the move up here. So you've had five years and, and, it, and it sounds like you've done a nice job increasing skier visits. What, what's been your focus? So what was, what was working when you arrived and where did you need to put some energy to maybe tap into some new sources of either revenue or, or just make the place run better? Yeah, we did a bunch of work initially on reducing cost. A big chunk of it actually was energy. So we did a big piece, year one, right out of the block. We did a big snowmaking energy upgrade and we changed from diesel compressors to electric compressors. That made a fairly substantial change in our cost structure. And for the most part, we've done a lot of work on the cost side. And, you know, now we've got to start to work on the revenue side a little bit more in terms of, you know, skier experience. So the place was working reasonably well. You know, we had a great local following. Ski racing here has been a big deal, always has been. Middlebury is a division one school for skiing, NCAA skiing. So that part of it, it was working pretty well. And then it's just a matter of getting some other people to understand that we we're here. Increasing our prices a little bit, but not so much that we definitely want to encourage, you know, the local people and the kids particularly that, that don't have the opportunity to ski. We love to find ways to get them here. Our past structure was a little, was interesting. We, we were, a lot of the kids were going, uh, kids, there's that word again. The students, a lot of the students, sorry, were going 
<clears throat> over to uh, Sugarbush and over the mountain because they had a great pass price for Middlebury students. So we changed up that pass pricing structure a little bit for students, and and we've seen that those students are returning to the bowl. And you know, as they, I mean, this is their mountain; it belongs to them, and we need to you know, make it that way. Yeah, it's tough to compete because Sugarbush and Mad River Glen they have one joint pass product. And it's for college students. And I, I noticed, I think your pass price for students is right around $100. Mm -hmm. What was it before? And do you find students getting both in Ski Middlebury when they don't have as much time to go up to Meadow River Valley? Or, or are you finding they're switching all together? Yeah, I think I, there's a mix there. I think some of them are getting both. You know, they still have a great price over at Sugarbush and Mad River, but you know, it's 40, 45 minutes over the hill and you have to get back if you have class, whatever. I, I think now with a, a $99 Seasons pass here. It's much more attractive to buy that pass and be able to come up and ski a few runs and then go back down. You know, we have the Tri Valley Transit bus that runs right from campus up here, so they can hit that schedule and get some runs in, and then go back and study. We are also giving free passes to all first year students. So oh, wow. um, oh, that's great. Yeah, and that's I think that's really important. You know, to get them to understand that this is here right off the bat, and then keep them engaged. Sounds like lots of changes in just five years. And you have two huge projects going on this summer, Mike. You're putting in a new chairlift and night skiing. So let's talk about this chairlift first. And this is actually the Sheehan chair, which you just talked about is the chair that's the centerpiece of that February graduation. So tell us about this upgrade. What are you putting in and what is it replacing? The chairlift being replaced is a 1985 Pama double. The drive for that chair was built in a guy's garage in town here okay the guy passed away a few years back now the chair is serviceable for sure meeting all the state standards but it is harder and harder and almost impossible to find parts for and it's our it's our workhorse it's the first chair we open generally the last chair that closes and we will be using it for night skiing so really important piece of equipment for us so we're replacing that with a skytrack fixed grip quad it's going to have a few more chairs on it. The overall uphill capacity will be just slightly more than it is now. But I think it's going to be a great benefit to our snow school who, you know, you can imagine if you have a, five children in your class, you've got to farm four of them out <laughs> to other people to go up the lift. And so now, you know, we'll be able to put a, an instructor on the chair with at least three of them. And that, that'll be really useful. Is, is the lift going to follow the same line as the current lift, same load yeah. and unload stations approximately? Yep. Same length, same unload, same load. We had looked at taking it a little further up the mountain. Uh, there's not much more mountain on that side, It's, it's but there's a little knob, you know, readjust the lift line, but it was going to be probably a couple years of permitting to get that done. So we decided to, because it, it does, it works well in its current configuration. So just keep where it is and take the advantage of time. Did you put a loading carpet in the bottom? No, no, it'll be self-ski on, no, no loading carpet. So again, we're recording this on May 15th. Where are you at in the project now? Have you demolished the old chair? What's the construction season look like? We're waiting for the Act 250 permit to come back to us. We're in hopes that it's going to come back at any time. We are ready to go. We've taken the cable off the lift. You know, the chairs obviously are off the lift. The cable is now off the lift, but we can't take anything apart until we get the permit, because if for some reason the state decides not to issue the permit, then we don't have a chair. So, <laughs> so we're in a, we're in a holding pattern right now. A little, little frustrating, but that's, that's the way it works. So we're trying to be patient and um, bide our time. Should the permit come through, 
what's the fate of those chairs? Are you going to auction them off? Are you going to keep a few around for fun? What, what What's your plan for the chairs? So we are, there are 66 chairs and there are 189 people interested in those 66 chairs. Okay. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to have a drawing. We're going to keep the price reasonable because a lot of the people that are interested in the chairs are local folks that grew up riding that chair. They learned how to ski on that chair. You know, there's a lot of passion there and I don't want to make it so that only the, the wealthiest people can buy a chair. So uh, we're just going to pull names out of a hat and pretty excited about that. It'll be fun. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, this is, this is Middlebury's first chairlift upgrade since 2009 when you upgraded the Worth Mountain Double and they went with a triple chair there you know, in hindsight, was that the right decision? And what made you decide to go with a quad this time? Yes, I think that was the right decision for the triple. Again, we have way more uphill capacity than we have lodge or parking capacity. So we're we're over oversubscribed on our uphill capacity, which is a which is a fine thing. The reason we went with a quad is because triples are kind of hen's teeth now. Most manufacturers don't make a triple. And in fact, if you're not looking for a detached quad or six pack or eight pack or gondola, the options are fairly limited uh, in terms of uh, fixed grip chairs. So it would have actually been more expensive to put a triple in than it would have been to put a quad in because they, they just don't make them, right? They're not making the chairs. So they have to ramp up to make the chairs, et cetera, et cetera. So we were working with Leitner Palma and as such working with Skytrack to do the fixed grip lift. I mean, how important is Skytrack to small ski areas like yours that don't have, you know, $8 million for a new high speed lift, but you can put out the 2.5, 3 million, whatever it is for a fixed grip quad. And, and Skytrack makes that nice, simple lift still. I think they're, they're going to be more and more important, I think, as we go forward here. What did we learn down in Savannah? There are 2,000 lifts in the States right now. And there was a metric as to how many of those were going to be needing replacement. There was a lot. And right. Yeah, certainly a portion of those or a large number of those will, will be detaches, but there's also a huge amount of, those are chair lifts. Those are in, in gondolas. Those aren't little surface lifts. The weirdest, you know, that 2000 number. So there are a whole bunch of ski areas in the, across the country that are just like the snowball, the little smaller ski areas with, with fixed grip lifts. And so the Skytrack uh, option is going to be more and more important, I think, as we go forward. We've seen a little backups in the lift manufacturers. When did you decide that you wanted to replace this lift? Was it recent or have you had to wait until the manufacturer had an opening? We've talked about it for a few years, knowing that it was coming, and we definitely were spurred along by the idea that lift manufacturing can be sold out. So that impacted our decision timing this past fall. We've been talking about it for about a year. So late last fall, we pulled the trigger on, on the contract just to be sure that we could get in the queue. So you'll be in pretty good shape once you upgrade Shan. You'll have two basically new modern lifts. On the back side of the mountain, you still have the Bailey Falls chair, which was installed mm -hmm. in 1987. I, I imagine because this tends to, I think, sit idle midweek, it has pretty low hours on it. But just talk to us about Bailey Falls, how happy you are with that lift, if you're maybe looking to upgrade that within the next five, 10 years. Yeah, Bailey's Falls is a great lift. It does see very few hours. 10-year average, it, it operates 14 days a year. So it doesn't see a lot of hours. We keep the line work up to snuff every year. We're going to pull the drive motor this year and have that worked on. I don't see a change in that lift for a while. It's in good shape. It doesn't get used a lot. 
low hours. And it's, it's unnatural snow. So that's a big part of the driving force there. I would like to run it more. I mean, I'd like to get to the point where we're actually operating that more hours a year. The other big project you have going this year is night skiing. And, you know, lay this out for us, Mike. What's the footprint going to be for night skiing? And what drove this decision? Yeah, so we're excited about this. Uh, this is one of the things I brought to the table when I came up here about 20 odd years ago. I don't have a remember exactly. The high school stopped letting kids out of school in time to come up and train. Uh, so we went from state championship high school alpine team to no team in within a couple of years. The Nordic team can get out of school at 3.15, 3.30, get up to Reichert and get an hour or so of training in before it gets dark on most, you know, most days. So we have about 50 or 60 kids that come out for the high school Nordic team. As such, a lot of the culture in Middlebury turned from a, a ski culture to a hockey culture. The kids were like, well, what am, what am I going to do in the winter? Well, I'll, I'll play hockey or I'll play basketball. So as a means of increasing or bringing the ski culture back to Middlebury and as a means of helping with our bottom line, one of the easiest things to do is use the area at a different time so that parking and lodge capacity doesn't affect it, right? So we're using the same capacities, but only but at a different time of day. So night skiing became a, a, an interesting option. So we've been looking at this for you know the last five years, and we got the permit, uh, the Act 250 permit last fall. We were going to try to put it in last winter at the last minute, but the electrical contractor got called down to uh, Florida because of Hurricane Ian, which is probably a good thing. For us here, yeah. okay. I think for Florida, for sure. But, you know, trying to jam that in at the last minute and probably would have been a bad start. So we decided to hold off and start the install this spring. And that's that's one thing we're going to be probably this week. We're going to start putting a, a backhoe on the ground and digging cable. So what is the lit trail footprint going to look like? Yeah. Sorry, you asked that. <laughs> the footprint is she inside of the mountain. So the Lang the Cameron and the Kelton trails and the carpet area, the snow school discovery zone area um, will be the trails that are lit. Cameron will be predominantly training and racing and the Kelton and the, and the Lang will be uh, public ski. Uh, when we're not training and racing, we'll, we'll definitely have the, the Cameron open the general public as well. And then Lang is where your terrain park is right now? Yeah, if you call it that. <laughs> one of, yeah, one of the things that we're, we're not great at is the terrain park. You know, we have 100 acres of ski trail, uh, which isn't all that much, but we have 600 acres of gladed terrain and woods. We kind of think that that's kind of the terrain park, I guess, you know, sort of yeah. a natural yeah. terrain. We've got a few sure. features on the Lang, got to do something with that. And uh, that's all in discussion right now is what could we be doing and what, what can we do relative to some sort of terrain park? So you mentioned your your Act 250 permit, which is, for those who are not familiar with Vermont skiing, is is a, a Vermont state law that governs how ski areas can expand and, and what they can do and, and what they have to do. And you could probably explain it better than I can, Mike. But I have a couple of questions about the permit. I mean, first of all, those three trails you mentioned off Sheehan, is that what's defined in your permit or is that just what you're starting with eventually do you imagine expanding this night skiing footprint and, and do you need a new permit or does your current permit allow for that expansion? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so the Act 250 is a state environmental laws. They've been around for somewhere around, around 50 years. They will define those three trails as our current permitted acreage for the lighted terrain. And then we would have to put an amendment out if we wanted to add any other terrain. 
So there's not a lot of night skiing in Vermont. Bolton Valley has a really big operation. Mm -hmm. Magic Mountain was able to put in just a little bit a few years ago. Cochran's has some night skiing. But for the most part, it's a state where, you know, it's a sparsely populated state. So that probably has a lot to do with it. But Act 250 is a big part of the reason why it's it's harder than it may be in other states. So what did it take to get that permit? I mean, we dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. We, you know, went out to public comment and we had very little pushback. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. On that. <laughs> That's great. Sometimes things just happen. So, so what, what's your hope for this? I mean, you described the impacts on the local high school that this could have. Just from a cultural point of view, are, are you hoping that this further enriches the relationship between the ski area and the college? Because students maybe don't have to rush back to class. They can come out and, and you know, if they don't get there till 3.30, take a couple runs in the woods and know they can still take a few spins off Sheehan. Or kind of what, what's your thinking around how this could enrich that relationship? Yeah, I think it'll enrich the student relationship with the college for sure. It'll provide opportunities for all the local schools and even folks that don't get a chance to get away from, you know, they can't ski during the week because they can't get out of work. So they can come up and take some runs at night. Operationally, we're going to be open Wednesday, Thursday and Friday nights from four to nine at this point. So, you know, it gives somebody an opportunity to come up after work and take a few laps or, uh, you know, have a date night and, you know, come up and ski and have some dinner. But, you know, the college, it's certainly the college uh, students and the high school and middle school and grade school students are all, I think, going to benefit from this significantly. So let's take a step back here, Mike. The two projects we just talked about, a new chairlift and night skiing, that represents significant investment on the part of the ski area and on the college. What's driving all this? Is this a philosophy change on the part of the college that they're saying, okay, we, if we want this thing to make money, we need to invest money? Is this the fruits of what you described, this increased attendance the past two seasons and the, the ski area just has more money to work with. What's driving all this investment in Middlebury Snowball that's, that's really going to slowly transform the ski area and how people perceive it? It's a long-term plan. It's planning that we've been looking at for at least five years now. The lift piece is, yeah, you know, ultimately you have to replace the lift. And this was a good time to do that, coupled with the lights and, and make a kind of a splash with the whole piece. You know, we're investing about, you know, about $4 million in this project. And, you know, which I'm laughing because having just come back from Savannah and the industry <laughs> is is investing, what was it, $860 million across the industry? Uh, it's it's right around there. Yeah, yeah whatever it was. It was yeah. <laughs> north of 800. Maybe it's 820. Yeah. But yeah, I just am not looking at these guys figure 860 no, sounds right. Double, double the investment from the year before. Four million is not that much money. You know, <laughs> you know, you know they, a lot of mountains will put that into moving a lift or put it into their kitchen, whatever it might be. So, <laughs> so these are huge investments for us. You know, these are big projects for us at the Snowball. But uh, <laughs> oh, in, in the scope of the industry, they're relatively small. But yes, we have identified probably about $15 million of upgrades to do to this mountain over time to bring it up into the 21st century. What are the future upgrades? What, what else can you tell us is on your wish list or your plan? 
Certainly some uh, customer service upgrading, some lodge upgrading, snowmaking upgrades, maybe some additional snowmaking. We have 35% snowmaking at the Snowball. We cover the, the face trails and, you know, it works, but we could expand that, right? Most of our competitors are somewhere between 70 and 90% snowmaking. I'm not going to say competitors. I'm going to say colleagues. Let's edit that to colleagues because, you know, we're not anybody's true competitor here. You know, we're an option. So those are some of the bigger things. Certainly if we could sneak some parking in somewhere, that would be super helpful helpful for us. A new snowmaking pond would be very useful for us. Things along the, that, those lines. You have this big lake in the middle of the mountain. It, talk, talk to us about, I don't even think I can pronounce right, Lake Pleiad? Lake Pleiad, are, yeah. Are you able, yeah, okay, <laughs> great. So are, are you able to draw from that for snowmaking? Just tell us about that feature and, and what part, if any, that plays in the mountain. Yeah, interestingly, if you're if you're headed for Lake Placid, be careful not to uh, select Lake Pleiad on your GPS because it'll bring you here. Um, okay, so it is a state. They are state waters. We cannot hold water directly out of Lake Pleiad. The drainage that comes out of Lake Pleiad is the headwaters of the uh, Middlebury River, which travels right through the base area. And we are able to pull some water off of that after it combines with another drainage. That's where our snowmaking water gets split off and diverted into the snowmaking pond. There's, I think, only two areas left in Vermont that actually pull directly from the river. Everybody else is off-stream impoundment. But it's a beautiful lake. It does sit up in the middle of our mountain. Uh, it's a great spot to, to you know, hike up to and have lunch in the summer. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a spot. It's beautiful. How, how big is that lake? I'd say it's about 10 acres. It's a sizable body of water to have right in the middle of a ski area like that. You know, in the ski area, it's, it's really interesting, Mike. And you mentioned the boundaries. You have 100 acres and of trails, and then you have 600 acres of glades and everything. And your, and your trail map's a little bit constrained. If you look on Google Maps, it's much more spread out. So talk to us about the difference between those two terrain designations. Is that whole 600 acres within that yellow boundary that's drawn around your trail map? Are you counting land that's sort of off that and doesn't necessarily go back to the base area? Just lay this all out for us and, and how you're counting that terrain up. Yeah, everything's in bounds. Everything's within our property boundary. We have about 800 acres of land here. A hundred of it is cut trails. An additional 600 acres is gladed and wooded terrain. And it's all, open. you know, you can ski anywhere boundary to boundary, except for over Lake Pleiad. We don't let people ski over Lake Pleiad. That's a bad idea in the, in the wintertime. <laughs> so so there's a, there's a little cutout there. So between parking lot, base area, Lake Pleiad, a couple other little spots, you know, there's about 100 acres or so in there. So, you know, we have neighborhood of 600 acres of wooded skiing, 100 acres of constructed trails. So it looks like you, you have, again, there's a really interesting trail map. And I, don't, I would love to know if you, if you know any of the history behind this thing. But you have some pink scratches on there. And that's where the glade skiing is that's what's maintained for glades or or that's just what you yeah. marked do you, do you have crews that go in and, and thin out the rest of it kind of just take us through your the glade culture there yeah the glade culture developed over time but uh what's on there with the, the hash marks is the maintained glades so there's a difference between maintained glades and wood skiing we do have crews generally made up of the ski patrol. Ski patrol is an interesting situation here we have a hundred percent no sorry ninety nine point nine percent student volunteer ski patrol. They're all national ski patrol certified. And then we have the ski patrol director that's a full-time paid position. So they form trail crews in the fall and uh, maintain the glades. And we also have some volunteer help that works on that as well. 
I just want to go back to the trail map for a, a second here. It's a really unique trail map, and I'll include it on the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. But it, I've never really quite seen one like it. Do you know the story behind this trail map, and are you happy with it, or are you looking to to change this up at some point? I couldn't tell you when the trail map was first drawn. I know that our ski patrol director uh, has had had some hand in it over the years. He's uh, he got some mapping background and mapping skills. Again, it's part of the culture of this area, and I'm reticent to mess with it too much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? uh, we're messing with enough enough other things. So you know that could be something down the road that we we work with. But I think at this point, I don't think you'll see a major change in that uh, for a little while. It's nice. I, I like to see a little bit different trail map because a lot of them do look the same these days. So mm -hmm. this is a really cool, unique, distinct one. So I'm glad it's staying put for now. Curious about expansion opportunities, Mike, either within the glades or cutting new trails. I mean, 800 acres is a lot to work with for context. Sugarbush promotes around 400 and some acres. So so that's, you know, that's a big trail footprint. So w what are the opportunities to cut new trails or thin new glades and what would it take to make that happen? Um, we have identified some areas that we'd love to uh, add some trails, both beginner level trails and intermediate to expert level trails. So that's in the overall discussion. What it would take is Act 250. You know, we'd have to get, you know, go through an Act 250 permit to do that trail work. Is it also tied to business levels that we were talking about earlier and just getting more skier visits? Not so much. I, you know, again, I don't know that anybody's coming here to ski one more trail. We have 17 trails, so we don't have a huge trail count. It's very old school New England style skiing, which is kind of fun. Adding a trail would spread some people out. It would help. But again, we don't really have a problem with our trail capacities at this point. But there's some opportunities for some pretty nice and good trail layouts to add if we can get there. What sections of the mountain are you scoping out for these potential trails? Lookers right at the top. There's a piece of terrain that would be a nice steep trail, could potentially be a bump trail, which is something that we're a little, little limited on. Lookers left, there's a little ridge between the Worth Mountains lift and the Bailey's Falls lift. The Bailey's Falls, we call the backside. And down through there, there's some opportunities to improve our, our beginner and intermediate terrain. Those are the two places I would be focused on. And is your boundary generally set? If you if you look on the map, you're surrounded by forests. But do you believe that any expansion that will take place in the future will be within that existing boundary? Yes. I, I don't see us expanding on National Forest Service wilderness. So that's um, very, very hard to get approvals for. We are actually, if our permit comes through for our lift, we're adding a small piece of beginner terrain off the magic carpet which will be super useful for us. It will improve the magic carpet beginner experience substantially. What part of the ski area sits on Forest Service land now? Nothing here at the Bowl. Riker trails have about 10% of their trail system on a block of land that sits in the midst of the college land. We're working with the U.S. Forest Service to do some land swapping, and hopefully we'll end up with that piece, and they'll end up with some other pieces that the college owns around the town. The land ownership piece is, is interesting. Down at Rikert, back in the turn of the century, 1900, the college was gifted 20,000 acres in Ripton. Everything that you can see basically from the Rikert Nordic Center, or sorry, we're calling it the Rikert Outdoor Center now. And then in the 30s, during the Depression, they sold the, yeah, they sold all but about 2,000 acres to the Forest Service. And there were some remote blocks and, and whatnot. We're trying to organize that a little bit differently, a little bit more efficiently. But that's, that's taking 
taking a while to get done, but I think we'll we'll see that done in the, in the next few years. All right, Mike, let's wrap up today with a talk on a little bit of talk on passes. You did introduce a whole bunch of new passes this year <laughs> in anticipation of night skiing. So you have a nights only pass, a days only pass, you have a combo pass. You also have a pass for folks who plan on skiing with children. So break this down for us, your your whole pass suite for 2023-24 and what your thinking was behind all these different options. <laughs> we, we basically tripled our pass uh, <laughs> for this year by adding night skiing. And, and that's probably pretty obvious, right? You have a night pass and then you have a, an all, all-encompassing pass and, and then a day pass. We also, when an adult buys a pass, you get two kids under 12 for free and you get a punch card for five visits. Now, you can imagine that not all adults have children. So scratching my head about that this winter is going, we need to have that option because there should be a little bit better pass pricing for those people. We added that product to the, to the list this year. We have adjusted our, our junior ages a little bit to better align with the age categories, people with children and college students. Those are non-Middlebury students. Middlebury students get one price and in a Middlebury faculty and staff and alumni get some preferred pricing. So we wanted to align that with students that are from other areas, you know, for other colleges and stuff. And so we, we incorporated that age group into the some preferred pricing or some better pricing for them. How's it been selling so far? Are you finding interest in the night pass? Are you finding most people are going combo what's the reaction been like so far yeah so we just got that up online about a week and a half ago or so and yes we're, we're seeing that most people are, are purchasing a night pass the combo pass it's early days yet so it's hard to call a trend on it but that's what we're seeing right now talk about that punch card a little bit more because that i from my understanding that is basically five lift tickets that you can use for anyone and, and i have to yeah. think mike that there's something to that as far as this increase in visitation you've seen, because if I'm a Middlebury pass holder and my buddy's got an icon pass and I'm like, Hey, why don't you come to snowball on Saturday instead of waiting in line at Sugarbush?" And they come and they say, Oh, this is actually pretty cool. And they come back and, and pay a ticket. I mean, that's the way it goes in my head. So, you know, talk about that product, why you introduced it and, and how that, how important that's been to your growth. You're exactly right. Essentially, it's marketing dollars, right? We're providing a, an ability for somebody to bring a friend and they're fully transferable. It's money. If you drop that in the parking lot, somebody can pick it up and use it. And, but yeah, that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing people bringing their friends. People have family in town from somewhere else. They'll bring those folks up. Yeah, it, it's been a really useful piece for us. You know, it's, it's probably the best marketing dollars we've spent <laughs> since the last five years. <laughs> what a great product you know another way to get skiers to try something is the andy pass which is sort of basically a sampler pack for ski areas so you joined this both you put both ski areas on this pass last season so middlebury college snowball the downhill operation is on the allied program so so andy pass holders get half off on weekdays and 25 percent off on weekends and holidays on walk-up lift ticket prices at the Snowball. And then Riker, actually, you get two days included in your Indy Pass. So talk us through your decision to join Indy Pass and how the first year went on each of those programs. You know, we've been looking at Indy Pass for a little while, and uh, Indy was not interested in adding more areas in this area because they were becoming saturated. So they started this allied area product. So th that was our only option. For, for the bowl. 
However, at the same time, they began the Nordic product. And we decided to become one of the, the initial outdoor centers on, on that product. So I think we saw a, a reasonable, uh, the numbers aren't on the tip of my tongue, but at Riker, we saw a reasonable visitation through IndyPass. And at the Snowbowl, it was decent. I think part of the deal is with the Allied Pass is that Snowbowl Pass holders can buy an Indy Pass for a preferred price. And I think that was a great adder benefit to our season's passes. And I think, again, I don't have the numbers on top of my head, but we saw a reasonable amount of people come in to use their Indy Passes here. Some weren't quite up to speed on the on the Allied piece. They, they were expecting to get, you know, free tickets. But, you know, once we explained it to them, they were, they were good. But by and large, you know, people knew what was going on and they were happy to be here. So that's, it was great. Given the opportunity, would you be interested in putting Snowball on the Indy Pass as a full partner so you'd actually get that payout for each visit? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, I know I know Doug Fish listens to the podcast, so there you go, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I have to imagine that, especially for college students who can add that on to get those two days at Jay Peak and Cannon Mountain and Waterville Valley is great because then when they have a little bit more time, they take a little road trip with their buddies on top of their midweek laps at Middlebury or wherever they're able to squeeze in between classes. Right. Yeah. It's a great benefit. And we have, a, we have a bunch of local folks. And, you know, I think the way they're using it is when they know, like, you know, if we're going to have the winter carnival races or something here, they're like, yeah, we're, we're not going to the bowl that day. So, they, you know, they, they take their Indy Pass and they, they go somewhere else. All right, Mike. Well, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you for being so generous with it after a, a you know, long and uh, challenging ski season. So I'm really excited about everything going on in Middlebury Snowball. I think that this ski area is on a really awesome trajectory. Really, really excited to watch it all happen and get up there and ride that new chairlift and, and make a few turns under the lights this season. So congratulations on getting all that going. And I wish you the best as you continue to grow this thing uh, in, in the very interesting New England ski landscape over the coming years. Great. Thank you, Stuart. It was great talking to you. I enjoyed it. That's Mike Hussey, General Manager of Middlebury College Snowball. Thank you so much for that, Mike. You are doing an awesome job up there. And it is so cool to see a little spot like Middlebury Snowball showing how smaller independent ski areas can stake out an identity even when they're surrounded by epic and icon monsters. Thank you all for listening. I've got a bunch of podcast conversations recorded and sitting in my edit bay right now. Those include conversations with the leaders of Sun Peaks, British Columbia, Granite Gorge, New Hampshire, and Stevens Pass, Washington. I cannot wait to send those your way. And the very best way to get those episodes as soon as they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before it's syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.